0: Welcome to the Low-Key Podcast from Present Influence. I'm your host, John Ball. And this week, I am very excited to have a guest with me, Mr. Joel Horbacker. Joel is a high school teacher, a professional speaker, an author, and a blended family coach. His passion, his goal, is influencing others to become better versions of themselves. Joel, welcome to the Present Influence Podcast.
1: Thank you, John. I'm excited about talking with you this morning. Uh, looking forward to it and uh, excited about having a good time.
0: So we're very glad that you've given up some time to come and talk to us as well. Can you tell us a bit about your background and how you came to becoming a coach and an author and getting involved in um, inverted leadership? Certainly.
1: I have been uh, a high school teacher now for 14 years. This is my, my 14th year in the classroom. And um, I, I, so I taught for, um, I guess, six or seven years and then took two years out of teaching. I went through a divorce a uh, year or so after that, I or sorry, a year before, before that, I had lost my father, went through a divorce and went through uh, you know, bankruptcy and foreclosure and um, had kind of a rough go. And I worked a bunch of other jobs and didn't really enjoy any of it. And so I was excited to get back in the classroom. I've been teaching again for eight more years and very thankful to do those things. And, and one of the things that I uh, have realized through my teaching is that I enjoy helping other people. I love the aha moments that you get in the classroom and about 2 or 3 years ago I started doing some professional speaking and you get the same kind of aha moments from a stage as you do from students in a classroom and I found the more of that I do the more I enjoy it as well um, i've also enjoyed you know I've, i was a history major in college that's a lot of what i've taught so i love reading and writing i love uh, bringing ideas together and so that was kind of the the basis for why i wanted to write the book inverted leadership which was a lot of fun uh, and so, you know, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey of taking things that I feel like uh, God has gifted me with, and figuring out how I can better use those to serve other people. Um, so, because again, I love being in the classroom, but I also love being able to influence more than just fifteen or twenty people at a time. And speaking, and writing, and coaching those are ways to do those things as well.
0: So uh, to some degree, teaching probably set you up really to be able to more easily move into something like public <laughs> speaking. But what, what made you decide to actually get on a, a platform as a public speaker?
1: Yeah, teaching definitely did set me up for that. I tell people all the time, you know, there's no tougher audience than a group of jaded, cynical 15-year-olds on a rainy Monday morning. And so if I can get them interested in what we're talking about, then to have an audience full of people that are already interested and maybe even paid to be there and that 's easy right there, um, but you know, looking into public speaking, it was a question of what skill sets do I have, and how could I use those in different venues and again, if being in front of a group, being in front of an audience, being able to engage and interact with them and keep them interested while also teaching them things and telling stories that it felt like a natural fit to go from a classroom to a stage because it's just it's teaching in uh, a different venue or it's teaching in uh, to a different audience. But a lot of the skill sets are very much the same, especially for the style of teaching that I do. Uh, I don't use a whole lot of technology. I don't use a whole lot of uh, videos or slideshows. A lot of it is just storytelling and it's audience interaction. It's question and answer. It's, um, you know, sort of Socratic method where you ask a question and get an answer and then say, okay, if that's the answer, then let's take it a step further, right? And so you you get the audience to go on with you on a journey down these roads. And uh, again, the more I've done it, the more I've enjoyed doing it.
0: For sure. Well, if you can handle a, a bunch of mid to late teens and keep them engaged for a while, that has to be the toughest audience anyone can go up against. So it's definitely the
1: hardest one I've had. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I would say that that has been more difficult than uh, than stand up comedy.
1: <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Because, um, you know, I, I, I like to think of myself as a pretty humorous guy. Uh, sometimes my classes think I'm funny. Sometimes they don't get the jokes. So, you know, stand up comedy may be harder. I don't know. Maybe. That's something I haven't tried yet, but I'll have to I have to give that a shot at some point. That'd be fun.
0: Another thing to overcome, yeah. So it's quite an interesting area. Tell, tell me a bit about inverted leadership. What does that mean?
1: So inverted leadership is the idea of taking traditional historical views of leadership and turning them on their head. Uh, as a historian, you know you learn a lot about uh, Thomas Carlyle and his great man theory of history, and uh, you know the, the, that kind of thing. And so. Instead of viewing leadership as a top-down, maybe personality or or, uh, authority-driven kind of structure, I wanted to to look at it differently. And so inverted leadership is the idea that the person who is in charge should be the the biggest servant of everyone else. They should be the person who is going out of their way to help other people. So the way that I define leadership is like you mentioned a little bit of in the intro. Uh, Leadership to me is uh, positive positively influencing other people to help them become better versions of themselves. Because if I do that, then the whole organization is going to work better. It's going to work in a more fluid kind of way. And so what that looks like as a soccer coach, because that's one of the things I've done a lot of, um, is it means that instead of making the goal to win soccer games, the goal is to produce better people while still also becoming better soccer players, because if I'm helping them become better people and their relationships are good off the field, then the product on the field is also going to be better. Uh, And so that's one of the things that we talk about a lot in my, in my leadership is if you take care of relationships, the results will take care of themselves, right? I don't have to worry about how many games we're going to win or lose, because I know if I've formed a good relationship with my players and they have a good relationship with each other, they're going to work harder for each other on the field. Well, if that's the case, we don't have to worry about whether or not we're going to win games. We know we're going to win games. We're going to outwork our opponent. We have a lot of talent. That'll take care of itself. Same thing in the classroom. If my students know that I care about them, they're going to work harder for me in the classroom, even if they don't necessarily like history as a subject. But if they, if they know that I care about them, if they know that it's in their own best interest to do those things, then they're going to work harder at those things. Well, and but, so, Sorry, where, where did no, that,
0: this leadership philosophy come from for you? For you? Where did it originate?
1: Uh, a lot of it comes from my college background. I went to a school called Covenant College. It's on top of Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And it is a small Presbyterian college. And the uh, I had a, a scholarship there called the McClellan Scholarship. And then that scholarship is based around training future leaders and the whole Leadership philosophy that they teach there is servant leadership. It's again, so I come from a Christian background. It's modeled on the gospel, and Jesus was the greatest servant of them all. And he, in fact, he says that in multiple places. I came not to be served, but to serve. You know, you read the gospels, and you read about him serving uh, other people by washing disciples' feet and uh, healing the sick, and uh, you know those kinds of things, and then ultimately dying on the cross. Well, that's that's serving other people for their good, not for his. And so that's where this leadership philosophy comes from is if I really want to have influence over others, then I need to do that by serving them and providing them with what they need. Now, you have to be careful because what sometimes people hear that and they think, so you're just going to be a doormat and, and let people do whatever. they No, no, that's not it. You still have to be the authority figure, again, in my classroom, on the soccer team, at home, whatever. Um, but ultimately, the focus is not on me. The focus is on the people that I am serving through my leadership, and again, that's what a, a lot of what Covenant taught me, and so that's a lot of what I have tried to do both in my family because I've been remarried now for five and a half years. Uh, I've got two daughters who are 15 and 13. That's a lot of what I try to do in my classroom, on my soccer teams, in my business, from the stage, wherever I am. My goal is to serve other people to help them reach their goals. Because if I'm doing that, I know that I'll be taken care of. I know that things will. I know that things will go okay.
0: One of the things that I discovered myself very early on in in my professional coaching career was the understanding that coaching wasn't about um, giving something to to anyone else other than helping them to empower themselves, that the only thing I should be giving people. That the only thing I should be giving people ever as a coach is the gifts that of self empowerment that if mm-hmm. they become dependent on me for anything for any kind even right. for even for leadership to some degree that that's not empowering to them they right. can look look for guidance and they can look for mm-hmm. direction but my guidance and direction should be to them to to help take them in a direction that helps them grow and develop Absolutely. those those kinds of philosophies apply to business for example mm-hmm. um, are going to build Loyalty and uh, an and empowered business for people that probably an environment that they wouldn't really wouldn't really want to leave as well. Hopefully, that one that gets people to stay around and to mm-hmm. know that that's a place that that cares for their growth. How how do you apply that in in your own life and in your own work?
1: Certainly, I appreciate you asking that because I think you you put it very well when you uh, when your goal is to empower other people. Uh, ultimately, what it feels like is you're almost trying to work yourself out of a job and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Cause you think about parenting or teaching or coaching. My goal is to get to where my kids don't need me to take care of them anymore. I'm still here as a resource when they need help. But like, you know, a 15, 13 year old daughter, they know how to do dishes. They know how to do laundry. They know how to uh, schedule appointments. They know how to, you know what I mean? Like some of my older daughters apply to jobs and like she knows how to start doing some of the adult responsibility things. So if she needs help, she can come to me, or she can go to her mom or her stepmom or her stepdad. We're still here, but we also need her when she graduates high school, we need her to be able to function as an adult. So we're kind of working ourselves out of a job. Like you mentioned, we want to empower her rather than keep her dependent on us. Same kind of thing in the classroom. My goal is for my students that at the end of the semester, they know how to think better than they did when they came in. So that whenever they go on to some other teacher, They already have the skills they need to be successful in that classroom, but even more important than that, they have skills that they need outside of the classroom, so they've learned how to be empathetic. They've learned how to examine issues from multiple perspectives and then decide on what they think is the best path forward, Um, and so those are things that I try to do, again, in the classroom, from the stage, whatever, because the goal, like you mentioned, it's empowering others. It's influencing others so that they can do the same thing you know, a lot of leaders talk about how a good leader is always training the next generation of leaders or you're training the people who are going to take over for you because ultimately what you don't want is a situation where if you are not around, everything falls apart because if that's what you've done, then your leadership has been all about you. What we want is to create a situation where if I'm there or not, things are going to continue going the way they're supposed to. If I'm there, obviously I can be a big help, but if I'm not there, that people aren't lost. They still know what they're supposed to do. They still have the expectations there and they have the ability to do those things for themselves. Uh, So it's very similar to what you mentioned in terms of talking about empowerment. So for example, in my blended family coaching, the goal is not to create a lifelong client. The goal is to create a client that I can come in and help. And then within a month or two months, they're in such a better place. They don't need my help anymore, at least not for a while. Now, if something happens and they need to come back to me, great, i would be glad to, to chat with you again and see if I can help again. But if in my blended family coaching, I create a situation where you need to come to me every single week for six months for help, I probably wasn't doing my job really well in the first couple of months. Does
0: that make sense? Absolutely. You want people to go away being able to, well, feel that they've solved their problem. And that yeah, they, or at that least they have put impacted. together a
1: plan to where they can solve future problems based exactly. on that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Good. Great if they do want to still come back to you and and work, but uh, also great if they go on and empower themselves and figure things out. Absolutely. It's again, it's like being
1: a high school teacher where one of my greatest joys is not when kids get an A in my class. I don't care what their grades are. Kids pass, kids fail, whatever. Not my issue. What I want is after you graduate, I want to see what you do with your life. Not necessarily do you go get a high-paying high, powered, you know, high paying or big, you know, high-powered job, but what are you doing to help other people? So I've got a lot of kids that I've taught who are now in the military, and I'm really proud of that because those are kids who have chosen a life of service. Right? I've got kids that I've taught who are now nurses or who are teachers. I've got some who are doctors and college professors. and Man, that's awesome. But it's not about what job you get. It's about what are you doing with the gifts that you have been given. Are you using those to help and serve other people? If you are, then what you're doing makes me feel like a success. That's great. Well done to you. If what you're doing is earning you a ton of money, but you're miserable and what you're doing isn't really good for anybody, we probably could have done better. (laughs) And I say we, because part of that's on me too. So that's a, that's a large bit of it.
0: What do you think are some of the mistakes or misconceptions people have in the area of leadership?
1: Uh, well, so a couple of things come to mind. One, again, is the idea that the leader has to know everything or be in charge of every detail. Uh, one of the things that I share with leaders a lot of times is that sometimes part of being a leader is being willing to accept responsibility, even if it wasn't your direct responsibility. Does that make sense? And, and what I mean by that is as a, as a soccer coach, if we lose a game, that's my fault. Now, I didn't play. I didn't kick a ball. I'm, I'm the old guy on the sideline yelling. But if we lose, I take the, I take the blame for that. Because there's something I could have done with my team differently that could have helped us perform better. Well, people go, well, you're not the one who played that's correct, but I'm the one who takes the blame for it and that's okay. Because the, what, I mean, what's the other alternative that I blame my players, man, we could have done better if my kids had not been so terrible today. Like what if, you know, if I do an interview with the newspaper after a soccer game and that's what I say, Those kids are never going to work hard for me again because if they don't win, they know I'm just going to throw them under the bus to make myself look better. That's terrible leadership. So one of the misconceptions is that the leader has to have oversight over every decision or they have to know all of the answers. So one of the big things that I try to teach is it's okay to say I don't know. As long as you follow it up with, we will find the answer together. If you come to me and say, what about this? I "I have no idea. Good luck. Good luck that's not very helpful. (laughs) They came to me looking for guidance. I gave them nothing. But if I say to them, I don't really know, but here's a couple of ideas I have. Let's explore these and maybe go talk to so-and-so and let's see what we can figure out together. Because now I'm doing both. I'm providing them some guidance, but I'm also empowering them to work on their own and try to search and find that answer. Right, and so that's kind of one of the big uh, misconceptions is that, that leaders have to be sort of all-knowing or whatever, and that's just not the case. Same thing with parenting or in a classroom. One of the one of the most powerful things I can say is, I don't know, but let's let's yeah. figure it out together.
0: Well, one of the most challenging things I think on the road to any kind of growth and development is often getting people to move from that idea of uh, that the world happens to them and that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that life is against them and that they are in the effect of everything that's going on and to try and get them to shift into that um that sense of personal responsibility of being what's coaching is called being a cause in your life and saying, okay, well, the world doesn't happen to me. I, I, I have, I have power here. I have control mm-hmm. and, and I choose to take responsibility even for things right. that I may, may not have caused even things that may not right. be my fault. I take responsibility for where I go or for what I do or for how I react and how I respond. Yes.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So those are all, all important principles in getting people to really, I think that's maybe the, for me, the biggest difference between someone who has, Done some work on themselves, who has taken some personal development or professional development and said, you know, what? I'm going to step up and set my game up and accept mm-hmm. that I'm responsible because I think that is the bigger difference. So you can tell people who have done some work on themselves or have been brought up in very positive, good value environments can do that. And natu- more naturally, some people have to learn it a bit later on in life. <laughs> but uh, but, uh, but it's still that for me the most important thing is foundational toward towards leadership and towards having a successful life.
1: Yeah, hundred percent agree. I love what you said about personal responsibility. That is uh, absolutely one of the cornerstones of what I teach. Again, in the classroom or on the soccer field or in my coaching or from the stage, uh, I, you know, I tell everybody um, you are responsible for you. Now, you 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 can't choose the hand that you were dealt. You didn't get to pick your parents. You didn't get to pick your upbringing necessarily. Um, But what you can do is you can choose how you respond to those environments. Just like you mentioned, um, you may not be responsible for what occurred in your life, but you are responsible for what you do with it and for how you respond to it. Uh, And I think that's a, just like you mentioned, it's a very, very powerful part because when people accept responsibility, they also then, whether they know it or not, they're embracing the power to change. And to do things better. As long as you think things have only ever happened to you, then you're just at the mercy of whatever's going on around you, and you're a victim. But when you embrace the fact that, okay, well, I didn't choose this, but I do get to choose how I respond to this. Now you're in control. Now you can become the victor. You can overcome your circumstances because um, you are again taking responsibility. It's something. It's actually there's a, a presentation that I do that. That's what it's called. It's called victim or victor, right? Your story is your power. Because how you – and I love there's, – um, there's a great book I recently read. It's called If I Had Lunch with C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's actually an audio book by Alistair McGrath, and uh, I say read. I listen to it. Uh, in, the, in the book, he talks about how C.S. Lewis create, uh, believed in what we call a story-shaped world. That is, we are hugely influenced by the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves and the environment around us. And there's so much truth to that because if, if I see myself just as a victim, then everything that happens, I'm going to interpret through that lens of this happened to me. It's outside of my control, and if things are bad, life's not fair. Well, that's true. Life's not fair, right? But that doesn't mean that you just have to accept it the way that it is. When you embrace the fact that you are in control of changing your circumstances, okay, well, now we can move forward. And that's, again, when people really understand that, whether it's, so I do a lot of work with blended families, um, there are a lot of blended families that struggle because of issues that they bring into the new family, right? Every blended family is born from some sort of pain, whether it's a divorce or a death of a loved one or, you know, some sort of uh, abandonment situation, whatever it may be, every blended family starts with some kind of pain for someone, and they bring that pain with them. And, Until people accept that that pain doesn't have to define them, until people accept that they can overcome that pain, then they're going to continue to be shaped more by that pain than by anything else. And so, again, by embracing this idea that you can overcome it, that you you are responsible for what's going to happen to you in the future because you can choose how to react. When you do that, you become much more empowered to change your own life circumstances, and that's a big part of working with blended families is helping them see where you are is not where you have to be, and where you want to be is possible, but it's up to you.
0: Could could you just explain for, for people listening who may not be familiar with the term blended family what that means?
1: Yeah, certainly. So a blended family traditionally uh, has meant a few different things. For me, when I say blended family, uh, it means uh, any family that has a uh, non, um, non-nuclear component. So whether that's a, a family that's the result of divorce and remarriage, or whether that's like death of a spouse and remarriage, or whether that is a, a family that has an adopted child or more. Or a foster family; those kinds of things. Those are all different types of blended families. It's the not; it's not the traditional nuclear mom, dad, you know, daughter, son, dog kind of family. And so, every nuclear every blended family is unique, and therefore, the specific issues within any blended family are going to also be unique. Um, but I believe there are principles that, if we focus on acting within them then whatever your individual issues are, if you follow these principles, we can help your family improve. So that's kind of what blended families are for me.
0: Great. And so that's what you now work in in terms of coaching. And you sort of explain some of the issues that go along with those sorts of families, families joining together and where there may Mm -hmm. be some clashes and challenges. So I can imagine that there's uh, in today's environment, in today's world, that's quite a common situation for people as well.
1: It is, yeah. i read a statistic not long ago that said here in the United States, something like a thousand new blended families are created every day, wow. uh, and that's a huge statistic. That's a staggering number when you think about it, especially when you then go a little further and you look at these statistics about children raised in blended family or single family, single parent environments. The um, you know the the incidences of struggling in school or social anxiety. Or um, uh, not finishing college, or whatever it may be, like the the statistics of the negative side of being raised in those environments are staggering. And so the question is, how can we fight back against those? How can we buck the trends, or how can we change those statistics to where kids in blended families can be just as successful as kids coming from traditional nuclear families? And the only answer for that is for the the all of the parents involved to work better. Together, for the sake of raising the children, and that takes um, <laughs> that takes a lot of work. It's what I call courageous humility. Um, humility is the idea of putting other people's needs before your own. And um, honestly, especially within a blended family, it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of heart to be willing to say what I need to do may not be my favorite, but it's what's best for the family as a whole, and it's what's best for the kids. And therefore, I'm willing to do it, even if it's inconvenient or hard for me because that's what parents are supposed to do, but it's not often what happens.
0: What else would you maybe add that is important in terms of building good relationships that maybe applies not just to families, but more, more generally in work, business, and life?
1: Mm-hmm. So the biggest one is just communication. Um, if communication is poor, Nothing else works well. There's a reason why if you, you know, you study the history of warfare and you study tactics, the first thing you want to uh, break up for your enemy, if you can, is communication, right? It's the same thing on the, when you talk about coaching, if teams communicate well, everything else works better because everyone's on the same page. So one of the big things that I try to work with Linda families about is how to have more positive and more constructive communication. Because, you know, and I'm sure you know from doing a lot of podcast interviews and in your own relationships, just because two people are talking to each other does not mean they're talking with each other or understanding each other. And so a large part of communication is teaching people to listen better. I believe it was Stephen Covey in his book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, who said, first seek to understand before seeking to be understood. And that's a, you know, it's a basic principle, but it's huge. Because that means when I'm talking with my 15-year-old daughter, what I need to be doing is listening to what she's saying and trying to understand what underlying messages are backing up what she's saying instead of immediately just rebuking her and going, I'm your father, here's how it's going to be. And I use that as an example because I'll fully admit I've been very guilty of doing that for a lot of her life. And it's caused us some issues as she's gotten older and become more independent. Uh, And one of the big reasons for that is just poor communication on my part. And so I'm, I'm learning how to get better at listening and I'm learning how to get better at being empathetic instead of just, you know, dictatorial for lack of a better word. Um, so one of the big issues in terms of whether it's business or blended families is simply communication. How do you communicate to your employees that you care about them? How do you show them that? And, um, how do you communicate that non-verbally? So, you know, if someone comes into your office and wants to talk to you, you say, yeah, sure. And you, you know, okay, go ahead. And you're typing on your computer while they're talking to you. The message you're communicating to them is what they're saying to you. Not that important because you're actually focused on something else. So let me give you a different example. I actually just, I was on a phone call with a man yesterday and he told me a story about one of my favorite coaches. It's a guy named coach Mike Shashevsky at uh, Duke university basketball here in the United States. He's a legend. He's awesome. And he, this guy that I was on the phone with met coach K as he's known coach Krzyzewski. He met coach K at a banquet and they talked for about 20 or 30 minutes. They sat next to each other and, and they talked. And then this guy that I was on the phone with, his name's Frank. Frank didn't see coach K for like 10 years. And then he happened to run into him in an airport 10 years later. They'd only met one time for about 30 minutes. And Frank walked up to coach K and he said, Hey Mike, that's, you know, coach K's first name. He said, Hey Mike, how are you? He said, Frank was telling me the story. He said, yeah, Coach K looked right at me, said, Frank, hey, it's really good to see you. And he said, you know, I've met the guy one time for 20 minutes. The man's a celebrity. Why would he remember me? But he did because when you, and this is what Frank said, he said, when you talk with him, he makes you feel like you're the only person in the world because he's so focused on you. Well, that kind of thing, that's, that's a huge part of it. If you, can, if you can really communicate to someone their importance to you by the way that you listen to them, that's a great foundation for building a better relationship because it's communicating non-verbally just how important they are to you. Uh, I know um, there's a business guru named Bob Berg who says it very well as uh, in a different way. He says, you need to listen with the back of your neck. And it kind of has to do with, with really paying attention and leaning in and, the, and even the posture that you show when you are paying attention to what someone else is saying. And I think those are really brilliant ideas that when we can communicate uh, that we really are listening, and we're listening to understand the other person. Those those things go a long way. Again, whether you're talking about business or family
0: life, perhaps even even more important in a world where there's increasing levels of distractions and yes. things to take us away from from being present, not just for ourselves, but with the people who who we spend time with. And I've heard it talked about many times about how important it is that when you spend time with someone that you are actually there with them because it's not yes. really about the amount of time, it's about how present you are and the quality of the time that you have together. Yeah, if, absolutely. If someone if someone listening to this is thinking, well, how, how can I get better at listening and being more present with people, what, what advice would you offer them?
1: Sure, well, you started to touch on it there for a second. One of them is just to get rid of the distractions and for most of us that means the digital distractions. So if I'm, if I'm hanging out with my daughters and I want to communicate to them that, that I'm really listening and I'm present with them, I'm going to go put my cell phone in another room. Um, scientific studies have shown if our cell phone is in the same room with us, even if it's not in our pocket, it's a bit of a distraction because if it's sitting on a table in my eye line, I'm going to be glancing at it every few minutes. Even if it's not lighting up, if I see it sitting over there, I'm going to take a look at it just because that's kind of what I'm addicted to. You know what I mean? But if it's in another room, it's the old adage of out of sight, out of mind. So if I leave my cell phone in another room, then I don't have any choice, right? So I'm, I'm paying attention to my kids. I'm talking with them or, we're you know, playing video games or whatever it may be, but we're interacting with each other. So one of the things that I would tell someone who asked that question is get rid of the distractions, turn the TV off or turn the computer off if that's not what you're doing together. Put your cell phone in a different room. Put it on silent for a little while. The world can survive. I promise, you know. Um, And so that's the first thing is get rid of the distractions. The second one is to cultivate the skill of learning to ask good questions. Uh, I've seen a lot of great blog posts about this for people like me. Parents, when their kids come home from school, we ask questions like, how was your day? And the kids go, fine. And then the parents complain, well, the kid never tells me about their school day. Well, that's because we're asking bad questions. I mean, if someone comes up to you, someone you know, you run into them in a supermarket, they say, how are you? Fine. Okay, well, that's good because maybe they're just making polite small talk. They don't actually want to know how you are. But as a parent asking my child, how was your day at school? I want to know what went on during your day. So you see a lot of great blog posts about here's five other questions or seven better questions to ask. And I love those because they're great. So now when my kids come home, instead of saying, how was your school day? I can say, what happened today that you really enjoyed? You know, right. What was your favorite part about today? Or you pick one teacher that you know they really enjoy. and say, what happened in Dr. Minish's class today that made you smile? Cause it's hard to go in his class without laughing at something that, you know what I mean? That kind of thing, because those are more open ended questions that invite a more, um, a more complete response instead of just how was your day? It was fine. What did you do? Schoolwork. Did you learn anything? Not really like that. That's a useless discussion. Uh, and so again, trying to cultivate asking better questions, asking more personal questions. And and a large part of that, is a lot of what you do on your podcast, asking good follow-up questions, right? So you ask someone a question and they answer and you. go, Okay, so here's what you just said. I have another question about that because it shows that you were listening, right? And it shows that you were paying attention to their answer. And again, if, if parents can do that with kids or if managers can do that with their employees, again, it communicates this level of, uh, of concern for the other person. It communicates a level of care for the other person that goes a long way towards building good relationships.
0: I remember when we spoke uh, a little while ago in preparation for arranging the podcast together, one of the things that you mentioned was about the importance of empathy and Mm -hmm. listening to listen rather than listening to, uh, to speak.
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So empathy, um, empathy is huge in my world because a lot of the people that I speak to are hurting. And there's a, you know, there's a great phrase that says hurting people hurt people. And so if a lot of the work I do is with people who are already hurting emotionally, the one thing I can't afford to do is to step on their toes unintentionally. And so one of the first things I have to communicate to them is I understand how you're feeling because I've also been through it, right? I've been, I've been divorced. I've been through bankruptcy. I've been through foreclosure. I've been through issues where I didn't get to see my kids as often as I would have liked because they were with their mom, like. So the pain that you're feeling, the loss and that heartache and that frustration and that anger and the, I get it. So now that you under you know, and and after getting it, I communicate that with a level of humility. I don't know exactly what you went through, but I can understand sort of where you're coming from. I would love to learn more about where you want to be. And so again, by communicating that empathy of, I, I have some degree of understanding where you are, but I would also like to learn more about your situation, Right. Because then I'm telling them I have some understanding, but I'm not trying to compete with you about who hurt more or whose heartache was greater. You know what I mean? Because you have to be careful with that. The goal is to communicate to other people that um, you are you have their best interests at heart. You're out to help them, not to make yourself look better, feel better, whatever it may be. So a big part of that is again communicating empathy. And again, the, yeah, the other one is listening. Uh, to really understand, listening to have a better grasp of the situation. And a large part of that is asking insightful follow-up questions based on what they have said. And one of the ways to do that is by repeating back to them some of what they have mentioned, right? So if a person tells me, okay, so here's my situation. I've got uh, two kids and uh, their mom and I divorced a few years ago. She's remarried. I'm thinking about getting remarried and they go, and I say, okay, so let me make sure I heard you correctly. You've got two kids, you're divorced. Their mom is remarried. You're thinking about getting remarried, but your potential new spouse doesn't really want your kids around very much. Is that right? They say, yes. Okay. so here's my next question, because then they know that I've heard them. They know that I was paying attention. My brain wasn't wandering. I wasn't daydreaming. You know, I've heard where they are. And the other part of it is if I say something back that's incorrect, they have the opportunity to gently correct me. And that's good because now I have a proper understanding instead of a misunderstanding where they're coming from. And again, the the purpose of all of those things uh, is to build a better relationship. It's to let people know you care about them. It's to let them know that you are concerned with their well-being and not just your own.
0: What what then is your vision for what you would like to create through your life's work, through, through what you're working on?
1: My goal or my vision is to help families become what they are capable of becoming. And, and what I mean by that is I see it's very easy to find examples in culture of divorces that are ugly and hurtful and blended families that are still really hurting, that are trying really hard and just not getting anywhere good. And my goal is to help those kind of families learn how to work together better so that they can thrive more than they have before. Because the, the truth of the matter is, again, I'm divorced and remarried. My ex-wife is remarried. We live about a mile and a half apart in a tiny, tiny town in the southern United States. And the truth of the matter is, if the four of us don't work together well, then the people who suffer are not going to be the four of us. The people who suffer are going to be my two daughters, and then my, my, wife and her, or my ex-wife and her husband, they also have a four-year-old son together. Those three kids, those are the ones who are going to suffer if we don't learn how to work together better. So we need to figure out a way that we can get along, that we can interact, that we can communicate, that we can support our kids. And if we can do that, the people that benefit are not just the kids. We benefit as well as the kids. So if we do it badly, the ones who really suffer are the kids, but if we do it well, everybody benefits. And so my goal is to help other families do that. I feel like we've been really blessed. We've had some ups and downs, but it's generally been an upward trajectory over the past seven or eight years and I'm very thankful for where we are in terms of communication collaboration between our two households and that's what I want to help other people get to is a place where even I mean I don't expect you to become best friends with your ex-spouse or their new spouse that's not what I'm saying that I feel like that might be a little unrealistic what I am saying is I would like to help people get to where they can work together in a way that is good for everybody involved It's a positive situation. So that's kind of the blended family part. And again, a a lot of the work I do is within the leadership space. It's the same principles applied to business as opposed to being applied to family life, put other people's needs first, listen, well, communicate, well, show empathy. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. I'd love to create a world where leaders are not looking out for their own interests. They're looking out for the interests of the people they are leading because then everybody's better off. So that's, that's kind of the goal. That's the
0: vision. Yeah. A big part of, Leadership and persuasion and influence in, in my mind is things like getting up on a platform and presenting or being on video Or even on podcasts and certainly things like <laughs> writing a book uh, which which uh, which are things things that you've done all of these things In terms of public speaking, which I know is an area that a lot of my target audience are Interested in or are thinking about already or already moving into What are the most important elements for you when it comes to presenting and public speaking?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I would say the first one is knowing your audience and making sure that your message is one that they want and or need to hear. Because the way that I speak to my students, in the classroom that are 14 or 15 years old is not the same way that I talk to you on this podcast that's aimed at adults and business owners and entrepreneurs and things like that. Um, the way that I speak to a group of high schoolers at a leadership conference is not the same way that I speak to a group of corporate executives at a, uh, a corporate leadership retreat. You know what I mean? Because they're very different. The message is essentially the same. Um, but the, the stories that you tell or the way that you tell them, uh, those things may be influenced or need to be influenced by your audience. So one of the big things is just knowing who it is that you're going to be speaking to and structuring and tailoring your message so that it resonates with them as opposed to just being what you want to say. One, I've heard this from multiple uh, professional speakers and professional speaker coaches that I have a lot of respect for. They say the same thing over and over I say, listen, your your time on the stage is not about you. Your time on the stage is about the audience your job is to help them. It's to, whether it's to inform them or instruct them or inspire them, whatever it is you've been hired to do, it's not about you. Yeah. It's about them. And I, and I think that's 100% right. So the first thing is asking yourself and making sure you understand what is it the audience is there to get? What is it they're trying to accomplish by listening to you for 45 minutes? There's a, a lady named Neen James who I, who I love and have a lot of respect for. She wrote a book recently called Attention Pays. And in the book, she talks a lot about how uh, we have a certain amount of time. And so the most valuable thing that we can give to another person is our attention, right? The most valuable thing we can give to someone is our attention. So your, your uh, listeners who tune into your podcast, like they're giving you that attention. They're giving you their focus. So we need to make sure that we're giving them what they want, what they need to say thank you for them giving us their time. And that's the same kind of thing when you're speaking from a stage is you need to know what it is the audience is after and provide that for them.
0: My my speaking coach puts it very nicely and says that the most important conversation that's going on is the conversation inside the head of your audience members.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of truth in that because yeah, what you're there to do is help them do something better or differently. Uh, there's one of the guys that I love, his name's Grant Baldwin. He says, what is that you want the audience to think, feel or do differently as a result of your speech? If you don't know the answer to that question, then you probably need to go back to the drawing board and focus your message a little more, right? What do you want them to think, feel, or do differently as a result of your presentation? I love that as a starting point.
0: Great. I think these are all really important elements. And I'm really happy to be discussing them as well. And uh, stories are a huge part of being able mm-hmm. to influence and persuade people. I mean, we, we grow up with stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of our history is, comes from stories you know there's yep. been traditions of storytellers as far back as we've been able to speak really right in your own presentations the stories that you tell is there a particular mm-hmm. story that you like to use that you could share with us sure there's a bunch I because I do I love
1: storytelling I, um, I mentioned I was a history major and I fell in love with history in uh, college because I had three professors that were just brilliant storytellers And that's the way that I try to teach my classes as well. It's just through storytelling. Um, There's one story that I share from the stage uh, at most of my leadership presentations. It's about my older daughter. Uh, And it shows the power of uh, what I call be the first, which is one of my leadership principles from the book. And be the first means that you have to be the first person willing to be uncomfortable. You have to put yourself out there. You have to uh, come to the defense of people who need it, or you have to be willing to try to fix a relationship that's been broken, or you have to be willing to um, step out of your comfort zone in the service of other people, whatever that may look like. So my daughter at the time was, I want to say fourth or fifth grade. So she is, I don't know, 10, 11 years old, maybe something like that. And you can't tell because I'm sitting down in this interview, but I'm maybe five foot three and a half inches tall. I don't know how that translates to uh, to centimeters or whatever, but it's not many. I'm pretty short. I'm on the very short end of the spectrum, very Hobbit-like. So my daughter was also pretty tiny because I'm the tall parent. And she's, in again, she's 9 or 10 or 11 years old. She's at school one day, and one of her classmates, um, this classmate's parents were going through a pretty ugly divorce at the time. So he's living with one parent, but all his stuff is at the other parent's house, and the parents aren't getting along, so the little boy can't go to the other parent's house to pick up more clothes and things like that, right? And so he comes to school three or four days in a row wearing the same clothes. Well, we all remember what it was like to be a little kid. If you're different in any way, that's going to get picked on. And so for this student who goes, it's, I wouldn't say it's a super affluent school, but it's a pretty comfortable middle class kind of school, right? These kids are comfortable And so uh, in terms of their socioeconomic status. So for this kid to come to school in the same clothes three or four days in a row, that gets picked up on pretty quickly. And so kids start picking on him for it. And after a couple days of this, there were a couple, there were uh, a few of the students in that boy's class that were just giving him a really hard time at lunch one day. And my daughter, again, little tiny blonde haired girl, just walks up to them and says, you need to stop. It's not his fault that his parents aren't getting along. It's not his fault that those are the only clothes he has to wear. There's no reason for you to give him a hard time about that. And it was, and the thing is, I didn't know this had happened. She didn't say anything about when she came home that day. She didn't say anything about it. What happened that night is two things. One, the little boy's dad called me on the phone and said, let me tell you what your daughter did today. And I thought, oh, no. Because <laughs> I know my kid, she's half me. If someone says, let me tell you about your kid, I'm thinking, oh, what they do? Right? Sure. But he said, no, listen, here's what your daughter did today. My son came home and told me this story. I thought, man, that's awesome. And then later that night, another girl in the class, who is a friend of my daughter, her mom called me and told me the same story and said, let me tell you about what my daughter said when she came home today about what your daughter did. I thought, man, that's incredible. Cause that's the stuff we teach our kids all the time, right? Stand up for other people, look out for other people, stand up to bullies and tell them to stop. And how many times do we actually see kids do it? Not very often. So that's one of those moments where my daughter didn't even tell me about it, but other people did. And it's, I mean, this was five or six years ago. It's absolutely, I don't care what she does with the rest of her life. That's one of the most proud dad moments I will ever have. Like my daughter is, this, this older daughter, she is a brilliant singer. She has sung on the stage at Carnegie Hall in New York City, right? And it's awesome. That's nothing compared to what she did in her class that day. Yeah. Because ultimately what, what means more is she stood up for someone else who, who wasn't able to stand up for themselves in that particular moment. That's what I'm proud of, you know? My younger daughter's a lot the same way. She has one of the most tender, gentle hearts of any person that I've ever met. And that's what I'm that's what I'm proud of for my kids. Well, you know, whether they accomplish things in sports or whether it's singing or acting or academics, I don't care. I want you to be a good person. And and those so that story about my older daughter, like that's one that I'm really, really proud of uh, because it illustrates what we want our kids to become. And the thing is I would love to take credit for that. I don't know that I ever did that. I don't know that she's ever seen me do anything like that. So I'm not sure where she learned it, but man, I'm glad she did. So it's something I'm really, I, I love to share that story from the stage.
0: Yeah, it's a great story. Yeah. And let's assume that, that you definitely had a lot of influence on on that behavior <laughs> as well.
1: well I, I hope so. I hope she's learned some of it from me. But again, she's got four parents and about 47 grandparents. And you know, I like to think that we're all trying to influence her in the same way in terms of positive things so uh, as much as i would love to take credit for it i really can't
0: so, some of it maybe
1: some maybe a little it. bit
0: let's hope and, De- uh, definitely
1: the ability to talk loudly to people much bigger than her i'll take credit <laughs> for that that's
0: i got that that's a, a great skill to have i love it i mean for, for, <laughs> for me for me that that story is kind of talking about that we, I think we all get very achievement focused in this world today mm-hmm. and very um, objective focused and even goal focused. I a lot of people talk mm-hmm. about having goal burnout and achievement burnout and um, right. because that's all that's important. Whereas really what's most important is how you show up in your life day to day as mm-hmm. who you who you are and who you really want to be in your life.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, the, the letters that you have, after your name or the accolades that you have on a wall or the trophies that you win that are in a trophy case, like those aren't bad things, but they're not the ultimate things. Uh, They're they're not the things that we should be putting the most focus on. What we should be putting the most focus on are the relationships, especially relationships that we have with people who are close to us. Um, You know, as parents, that means I need to be taking care of my wife. I need to be taking care of my kids. If I'm not doing that well, and all the rest of it really, really doesn't matter that much because at the end of the day, that's not what I'm going to look back on and go, man, that was the, you know, the greatest thing I ever did was win that soccer trophy. Yeah. Well, if that's true, that's a wasted life.
0: Sure, because it's about how every day, how every day goes. It's making me think of that book. Uh, I don't know if you've read the book by Daniel Kahneman, Thinking, Fast and Slow.
1: No, I haven't. We have to helped. check
0: that out. Yeah, it's, it's it's quite a thick book, but it's definitely worth worth okay. the effort. It's certainly on audiobook as well if you like audiobooks. And um, but one of the things with, that he talked about in that book was the thing about how you how you look at your life, how you evaluate it. If like you ask someone if they're happy, mm-hmm. and uh, You don't just think about your achievements. You think if you rate your happiness, you're thinking about how happy you are generally on a day-to-day basis. And this is that same sort of thing. We have this baseline level in our lives. And it was the same with uh, our values and who we show up as. It's more important to make those decisions about who you want to be in your Mm -hmm. life and how you want to show up in your daily life and that's where your happiness will come from that's where your sense of self-worth self-worth will come from not not from achievements they're great to have and you should certainly aim for things and and create goals but the most important thing and the thing that you will evaluate your life on more than anything else as to how successful you feel or how happy you feel is what happens daily
1: Right. Yeah. I think there's a lot of truth in what you just said. I know if you look at, um, cause again, I do a lot of sports. And so you read books about or by athletes and a lot of them will tell you, um, uh, you know, you strive and strive and strive to win whatever goal or championship that you're going for, whatever trophy you're trying to get. And then you get it and you kind of look around and go, well, well now what is this it? Like I thought, I thought it would make the, you know, I thought I would feel fulfilled when I got that. And, turns out you don't a lot of the time you know you you work really hard and you work really hard and you accomplish this great thing and then the euphoria wears off and you're left looking around going well heck now what am i supposed to do and so you realize it's not about winning trophies it's not about just those things it's about like you've mentioned cultivating the day-to-day of your life it's about doing that well um I've been very blessed. I've had a lot of success as a soccer coach. We've won some trophies and we've won some conference championships and the state championship with a club team or whatever it may be. Um, But ultimately, what I'm more concerned about is at the end of the day, when those kids leave my team, are they better people than they were when they got here? Because if they are, that's more important than any trophy. Eventually, whatever trophy or medal we win, it's going to get dusty. It's going to sit on a shelf, or it's going to sit in a cabinet, or whatever, and it's going to get dusty. And a couple of years from now, nobody's going to care. They're going to walk past it and glance at it, and it, they may not even, you know, register in their brain. So if that's what our focus was, I was a waste. What What our focus needs to be is on building these solid relationships, because that's what's going to last.
0: Yeah, more important to have the, the winning mindset than the win, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Excellent. One of the things that uh, I know you talked about already mentioned on the court, uh, on the podcast already is about using humor in terms of keeping <laughs> people engaged i know this is it's one of the most maybe hmm, contentious tricky areas in, in sort of mm-hmm. presentation public speaking and uh, being up in front of people doing anything how, how do you how do you apply that yourself it might be it might be hard to define i know but how do you bring humor into things <sighs> That's a that's really interesting
1: because for me, <laughs> how about I would love to answer that question if my family was here because they'd all go, no, that's not right. Because <laughs> I've, I've always thought of myself as a pretty humorous guy. And as I've gotten older, what I've realized is, and I tell my students this, my humor is not so much for you as it is for me. And what I mean by that is if I tell a joke and my students don't get it, I'm still going to laugh because I thought it was funny. And if they don't laugh, that's okay. Because again, if the point of humor is to keep them engaged, that's great because if they don't get the joke, guess what that gives me an opportunity to do? It gives me an opportunity to enlighten them as to why they should have laughed at this very clever comment that I've just made. You know what I mean? And then I could explain whether it's a historical thing or whether it's a literary reference because a lot of my references go back to uh, Middle Earth or Narnia or uh, the world of Harry Potter or right. whatever it may be because I love those kind of stories. Uh, or they go back to movies that these kids haven't seen because they're too young, and so they haven't seen movies like uh, Top Gun or the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or whatever it may be. Um, but I, I, love, I, I love to make people laugh. I like to make people feel uh, at ease. I like to make people feel like they're enjoying themselves. And so there's a couple of standard jokes that are you know low-hanging fruit that are easy to make. And so for myself, it's very easy to make self-effacing jokes about my height. Right, Because again, a lot, of the, a lot of the audiences I speak to are high school and college kids. I, honestly, if I stand up, I'm about the size of a middle schooler, right? right. That's why, part of why I grow the facial hairs so I stop getting mistaken for an eighth grader when I'm going into my, <laughs> my high school classroom. Um, but it's, it's easy and people kind of chuckle, but it also like it's a great way to break the ice, you know? Um, and so I, I enjoy using humor to do that. I also enjoy using humor to get people to see the absurdity of certain situations. So uh, think of the television show Seinfeld, you know, it was a self-proclaimed show about nothing. And a lot of the humor was in looking at regular day-to-day situations and just kind of changing the perspective or the, the lens a little bit. And you go, yeah, why do we do things that way? You know, like, you remember, you think of Seinfeld, a lot of his stand-up comedy, the, the way that he would start is like, what's the deal with? And then he'd mention something completely day-to-day. Yeah. Like what's the deal with people having dogs, and you look around and like yeah i've got I've got two dogs in here while I'm doing this, and why should we have these little furry big toothed creatures that we keep as companions and like, what is that about? Who started doing that? Where is it and it's just kind of goofy, but it's a great way for people to get the wheels turned and go yeah what and and why is it that certain people have certain kinds of dogs you know i've got um or certain kind of pets? My best friend is gigantic he's about six foot five two hundred and sixty pounds a giant like football rugby player kind of a guy, right? And he loves cats and he has this little cat that he carries around like Dr. Evil, you know? And it just, he cracks me up because he's this huge bear of a guy and you, you'd think he'd have some big, giant, mean looking dog and no, he's got this little furry cat. It's just goofy stuff like that. And and people start thinking, yeah, why, huh? why do we do that? You know, and it's just a fun way to get people engaged in a tangential aspect of what you're talking about and then kind of bring them back to the main point. Because what I've found is in my classroom or from the stage, if people are laughing and having a good time, they're going to stay more engaged than if they're not. One of the great pieces of advice I've seen for speakers is, I'm trying to remember, I wish I could remember who said this. They said, people love to laugh. Give them the opportunity to do that. And for some people, comedy comes a bit more naturally, whether you're good at little one-liners or side comments. For some people, it takes a little bit more work and you've got to rehearse it. But whatever it is, people, people love to laugh. And so in my classroom, if I see the kids start to you know, kind of nod off and their heads are getting heavy and their eyelids are drooping and, and I can just make some goofy random comment out of nowhere that gets half the class laughing, the other half of the class kind of sits back up and goes, wait, what did he say? And now they're back engaged. You know what I mean? They're, they're paying yeah. attention again. And so that's a great way—a great way to do that.
0: So it sounds like a Les Brown quote to me. I don't know if you have ever come across Les Brown, but uh, he's one of the one of the funniest motivational speakers, educators I've ever I've ever encountered. Okay, super nice guy. So I think it might be one of his. <laughs> but yeah, okay. Good. Yeah, yes, I love I love adding humor into things. I think there's a level of thing. Um, there's a level to which people can only give so much attention when the tone is serious or intense yeah. or like we need to sometimes lighten things up but I do also mm-hmm. agree that there is a, a receptiveness that comes from this a sort of learning state if you like that we do we learn better when we're when we're enjoying the process as well
1: yeah absolutely that's very true whether it's um, learning in an audience at a seminar or whether it's uh, learning in a classroom or, or on a soccer field if you're enjoying what you're doing more of it's going to stay in your brain because there's just with it. Uh, and so I think you're right there as well. I think that's a big part of, of why people enjoy humor so much. And that's why, I mean, you know, think of the jokes that someone told you when you were a little kid that stuck in your brain. Like, why would that stick in your brain? It's some random joke. Well, it's because you enjoyed it. And for some reason, it just, you know, it made those neurons click or whatever it is. And, and so you enjoy that. So you want to share it with other people. And whether they enjoy it as much as you did or not, it sticks in there. And that's why a lot of the lines we remember from movies that we love are humorous lines. And then you say it, and kids go, "What? Yeah, you know, well, you got to understand the context, and you get to explain it, and, and you know." So again, but it, it causes it to stick in the brain a bit more. So I think you're right there. that A large part of it is when we enjoy what we're doing, uh, we we tend to learn more from it or get more out of it.
0: In in the world of presentation and public speaking, are there any people who are an inspiration to you particularly, or have uh, influenced you in that direction to develop? in a different way?
1: Yeah, definitely. There are a few that come to mind. Um, One of the guys that uh, I've taken a couple courses from is named Grant Baldwin, and he's great. He's got uh, a website called The Speaker Lab and a podcast by the same name, and he interviews speakers from from all different walks of life that are uh, just brilliant in different ways. So he's been a big influence. Some of the guys that work with his program as well um, have been really helpful to me uh, Rick Clemens and Eric Reem and, and, um, uh, different people there. I also really enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed, you know, I mentioned Neen James earlier. She's been great cause she's hilarious. If you ever listen to some of her interviews, she is really funny. Uh, so I enjoy hearing her, a guy named Michael Port, who does a program called heroic public speaking. Um, he is a, he, uh, I think he's got a, I want to say like a master's degree in acting or something. And so he does a lot of, um, a lot of teaching on rehearsing and blocking and timing and things like that, because what those, and they've helped me in different ways, but one of the things that lots of them have done is helped me realize that speaking from a stage really is an art form. It's not just about having good information. Your information needs to be good, but the way you present it really does, it really does affect the audience. Um, And I saw this in my own speaking a couple years ago. I gave a leadership presentation at a high school. And I realized afterward when I was watching the video of it, I don't like it very much. And it was because at that particular venue, I realized, for, again, from rewatching the video, I just seemed angry. The whole presentation, I don't remember feeling that way while I was giving it. But afterwards, I thought, man, if they didn't like that, I wouldn't blame them. Because if someone's up on stage just angry at you the whole time, you don't want to listen to that. And again, the reception I got was actually good, which surprised me when I re-watched it because I just thought, man, that's hmm. – so I need to work on, uh, you know, and so since then I've kind of looked at, that's the only one I've had where I, where it was that way, but it just made me think, okay, so what would, again, whether it's Grant Baldwin or Michael Port or Ninja, what would they say about this performance? How might they encourage me to change what I'm doing? Uh, is it the tone of voice? Is it the timing of some of the deliveries? Uh, is it the positioning on stage? Is it the um, posture of my body when I'm delivering certain lines because these are things that really can greatly affect the actual message that gets transmitted. You know, they, lots of people talk about nonverbal communication, and a lot of what we communicate doesn't have anything to do with the words we say. And, and so, I use an example in the book that I wrote about when you're a kid and you did something and you, and you got in trouble and you had to apologize to your sibling, right? So, I've got an older brother, and I'd get in trouble, and my mom would say, "Well, apologize to your brother." I go, I'm sorry. That didn't communicate sorry, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And so when your mom's in, your mom looks at you goes, no, say you're sorry and mean it. (sighs) I'm sorry. Right? So it's, it's not just your tone of voice that changes. Your posture changes, your demeanor changes, your facial expression changes and that communicates a very different message. Well, same thing from the stage. And so it's been really neat to learn from some of those people how little tweaks like that, can make a huge difference. Another one that I love learning from cause he's really funny. Uh, it's John Acuff. I don't know if you've seen any of his stuff. He's written a book mm-hmm. called finish last year. And, um, I forget some of the others, but he's re- he actually just started doing some stand-up comedy to help change to help learn about different aspects of delivery and stuff. But he is, he's, he's just a humorous guy. I love getting his updates and stuff as well. So those are some of the people that I like to follow when it comes to public speaking.
0: Great. I think you just given us a ton of resources that I know I'll be going back through to make a note of yeah, all those names. Yeah, definitely. They're fun. Yeah, fantastic. What, what do you think makes a, makes a good presenter then?
1: I think it depends on a lot of things. It depends. One, it depends on the audience. Certain presenters are just not going to necessarily mesh well with certain audiences. And I, I don't want to necessarily give any examples because there are going to be listeners who go, well, I know this one guy. Well, that's true. It may be the exception that proves the rule, but, you know, mm. um, but the first thing is it just depends on the audience and what they are looking for. And that's why one of the first things when people are getting into public speaking, they ask you is, what is your ideal audience? Who do you feel most comfortable in front of? Um, I would not feel comfortable in front of a group of old money board of director corporate types, sure. right? People who are 55 and older who have been in business you know, with their family for two or three generations. I don't know anything about that world. So that's not my ideal audience, Right. And so a a big part of that uh, is what the audience is looking for. But a big part of it too is connecting with that audience. And so some of that has to do with what you do on stage. But one of the things I've loved learning from the people that I mentioned is a large part of what happens on stage actually is affected by what you do before it. So one of the things I try to do at each presentation, is try to get there early so that I can meet some of the audience members, learn some of their names, shake their hands, ask a little about who they are, and then I can mention some of those things in my presentation. Right, because then it lets them know one that I was listening, and two, this presentation is for them specifically. It's not that I haven't given it anywhere else, but this version of it is for them, because then that you know it means more, it hits home more. And so one of the big things is connecting with your audience and making sure that they know you are there to serve them. Um, some of it has to do with your delivery. Uh, you know, two of the authors that I love most are C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. And both of them were college professors in, uh, you know, in England for years and years and years. And it's really interesting because even though they were both great authors in different ways, Tolkien was not known as a great lecturer. If you listen to his interviews on YouTube, you can find some, or on the BBC uh, website, you can find some old interviews of his. A lot of time, he's kind of quiet. He sort of mumbles and stumbles over his words a little bit. And yeah. when he's reciting stuff, it's brilliant. But in terms of like going to class and listening to him talk, I don't think a lot of people were thrilled, but C.S. Lewis was known as a brilliant lecturer. He had this big, booming voice, and he would start, you know, he'd walk into the classroom and be, already be delivering his lecture as he's taking his hat and scarf off. And And he was funny, and, and he was clever, and um, he was able to uh, really engage the audience. And so it didn't matter what he was talking about. If he was giving a lecture, then the place was going to be packed. And so, again, it, it, it's not just the content, the delivery has got to be there as well. So some of it has to do with your ability to, um, you know, whether it's to project your voice or to, uh, uh, to get across to the audience what you're trying to get across to them, whether it's using humor or whether one of the other things I love about uh, C.S. Lewis is that he, um, he paints a lot of word pictures in a lot of his writing. He uses a lot of analogies. And sometimes you see the same analogy pop up in two very different contexts in two different books. And I, I love that as well, because he realized, OK, this worked well here. Let's use it. You know, let's use it again there. Um, and Tolkien does the same thing in his writing as well, where they, they, they paint beautiful pictures with their words that you can really see in your imagination. So I think that's a large part of being a good presenter as well.
0: Yeah. So it's not, not just the message, but also the art of delivering it.
1: Absolutely. There's a um, I'm trying to look on my shelf. I think there's one up there called the art of speaking, but I'm not sure. Uh, but just, yeah, different, different, different aspects to how you deliver it. Because, again, if I stand behind a podium with my hands on the side of the lectern uh, and I don't move, no matter what I say, there is a limit to how much of that message is getting across because there's a physical barrier between me and the audience uh, or between the audience and me. And um, there's only so much demonstrating and physicality that can happen if I'm standing behind the podium the whole time. Whereas if I'm walking across the stage and I'm waving my arms and I'm making you know big gestures when I'm making different points, like that, that's a different thing. But it also depends on the context because uh, you know back in September I was doing a presentation for a corporate retreat about an hour from my house, and it was only twelve people in a conference room in a hotel. Well, in that context, I don't need to be wildly gesticulating and wandering up and down in between there it doesn't make any sense right you know what i mean it's a smaller intimate kind of a setting it needs to be a little bit more subdued so yeah. part of your presentation is also knowing uh, or understanding the context of what uh what is required for the setting that you're in you know if you're in a big audience or if you're in a big uh, like auditorium with a huge stage and lots of lights you need to be big so the whole place can see you if you're in a much smaller setting, you don't need to have those things that kind of, they're going to feel sort of forced and out of place. And, you know, just those kinds of thoughts that go into it. It's a lot of fun.
0: A lot of, a lot of people who do go into presenting public speaking or have to present for any kind of reason, sometimes, sometimes end up having some things go wrong. What, what's the worst thing that's ever happened for you in, in presenting?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think the, <laughs> how about this is actually great. One of the very first presentations that I gave when I because I, I've always done presentations at, at schools where I've been teaching I'll do a chapel talk or I'll do a presentation for the teachers during an in-service or whatever but one of the when I started to actually get into professional speaking the very first presentation that I was going to give was at a church where the friend a friend of mine was the assistant pastor and it was for his youth group right so 30 or 35 teenagers and I walked in and I, was, I had this uh, great Prezi put together, this slideshow that I was going to use. And the first thing that went wrong is the technology just didn't work. So there's a projector, and it's got this weird blue light covering up the top half of me but it's not showing anything what it's supposed to. And so there, we're just kind of messing around for five or ten minutes, and we're hoping it's going to work, and, and it's just not. And I thought, well, it's okay. It, you know, I don't need it. It'll be fine. And there's a podium. So I go to grab the podium and move it out of the way, and I pick it up by the top, and the top just comes off, and the podium falls over. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're five minutes into the presentation. The technology doesn't work. I've broken the podium. The kids are laughing, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. We hadn't even gotten started yet um, you know, and, and I made a joke about, it. I said, this is how I begin all my presentations. I just break stuff. <laughs> and it seems like that really helps endear me to the audience. And you know, you make a comic joke out of it, you address the elephant in the room and then you move on. Um, yeah. but those were, I mean, just those two moments in the same five minute time span, I just thought, Ooh, if I can, if I can deal with this, I can, I can probably deal with pretty much anything that presenting is going to throw at me. Um, cause again, it's, you know teenagers can be a brutal audience they're not going to hold back a whole lot if you're if you're if what you are doing is not what they are there for you're probably going to learn it pretty quickly so um, i was glad that ended up going okay
0: (laughs) good conversely then what's the what's the best presentation experience you've ever had
1: oh man that's a really tough one as well i would say um there's a couple that come to mind. One was at a big conference in Orlando a couple years ago where I was speaking about blended families to a big parenting and family engagement conference. And afterward, I had a handful of people come up to me. I had you know five or six or seven, and um, I asked them, I said, so what did, you know, what did you think? Did you learn anything or whatever it may have been? And three or four, as they are answering, they're just you – know, they're, they're tears. Uh, because they said, listen, what you were talking about, that's exactly what's going on in my world. And this was encouraging because it lets me know things can get better. And that, that meant a ton to me because I mean, obviously I'm glad to know that they learned something, but more importantly, emotionally, it touched them to the point where now they feel hopeful and inspired where before they came into the presentation, they didn't have a whole lot of hope if any. And so that was a really, uh, that was a great encouraging kind of moment for me, um, Another one was at another church presentation where, uh, during the presentation, we it was it was exactly what you'd want. Like during the course of the presentation, the the kids in the uh, audience, the kids in the uh, the um, uh, the auditorium were laughing, and then during different parts of one of the sad stories, they're crying, and then they're laughing again by the end. And afterwards, you know, everybody wants to come and say hi and hey, it was good to meet you and thanks for you know. And so a, a lot of it is uh, a lot of what I have enjoyed is knowing that what I've said has made a difference to somebody. And so when you get that kind of feedback afterward, that's really encouraging. I had another one that was at a, um, a college, um, November of 2018. And after I got done, I got a letter from the lady who had had me come and speak to her class. About a month later, she said, um, we'd love to have you come back next year. We did a poll of our students in this class, we had a bunch of guest speakers come in and they said, you were their favorite. We'd love to have you come back and talk to next year's class. Said, yes, that's awesome. Great. Thank you. I would love to do that. Cause it's just, you know, it's encouraging to get that kind of feedback and know that you've made a difference to the point where other people are saying, Hey, you need to hear what this guy had to say. That was really, so those are some of the fun moments that I've enjoyed.
0: Fantastic. Oh, wonderful experiences. Joel, thank, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing these things with us as well. I really appreciate it. Um, What is one question that you would have liked to have been asked today and maybe weren't or that you've been asked before and love answering?
1: (laughs) So uh, one of the ones that I've been asked before that I love answering is when I talk about blended families, I share a lot of information that isn't fun to hear. Because what I tell parents is you're going to have to do things a little bit differently than what you've been doing. You're not happy with where you are. So you're going to have to do something different to get a different outcome. And I was sharing this presentation on blended families. I got done. and one of the ladies in the audience. We got to the Q and A and she raised her hand. She said, yeah, I, I have a question. I said, okay, man, what can I do for you? She said, well, my daughter is divorced. And I was thinking about her while you were sharing this. And I, I was just struck with this question. How do you share this information with people and not get punched in the face? <laughs> and, I, and I thought about it and I thought, hmm, that's a really good question because what I had been sharing is very challenging. You know, I tell people I don't have anything, I don't have any easy fixes for a blended family. They don't exist. And so uh, what I told her, and the reason I love that question is because it's one that I need to make sure that I address during the presentation, which is um, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to condemn you. What I'm here to do is invite you to come with me on a journey of looking at things differently. Because if I walk into a room full of parents and say, hey, listen, everything you're doing is wrong, and I'm here to set you straight, that's just a stupid way to try to get across to people. Even if the information's good, nobody wants to hear that message. But if I come in and I say, listen, one, I'm a a blended family person just like you are, so some of the struggles, some of the pains you're dealing with, I can identify with those. Two, the fact that you're here tells me you'd like your family to be in a different place. Great. So three, what I want to do is I want to invite you to look at things differently and let's see if we can figure out a better path for your family together. That's a very different way of encouraging people to shift directions. And so that was kind of how I answered her, As I told her I said, I've got to start with empathy, I've got to move forward with encouragement, and I've got to invite them on a journey of change. And if we do those things, people don't normally want to punch me in the face as much. But if I walk into a room and I say, Everything you're doing is wrong, why would you have ever done it that way? I've got the answers yes, people are probably going to punch me and I'm probably going to deserve it because nobody likes to be talked down to that way, you know? So I, I love answering that question. It just made me laugh.
0: Great. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for that. Well, and thank you for all of your time today. You shared some amazing insights with us on, on this podcast and some really nice ideas, some wonderful stories. Uh, you've really given, given a lot of value here, some great resources as well. I know I'm going to be going back and, and re-listening <laughs> to it at least once or twice uh, to make sure I get every every bit from this. and I want to just say thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for coming and sharing all of this with with us as well. Where can, where can listeners find out more about you?
1: Well, thank you for having me on. I've had a great time. I always love doing podcast interviews and I I love being able to share some of these things. I appreciated some of the questions that you've asked and the insightful follow-up questions have been really helpful uh, for helping me clarify things. So thank you as well. Um, If people want to find out more about me, you can find me on Uh, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn under my name, Joel W. Hallbaker. Uh, You can find my website, joelwhallbaker.com. If you're looking for leadership information, look up reallifeleading.com. Or if you're looking for blended family information, you can check there, or you can check my other website. It's called stepdadding.com. Stepdadding, like a verb, um, or a gerund. I don't remember. It's been too long since I've had to do grammar class. An ING, stepdadding. Uh, but you can check out any of those places. I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm all over those. I'm on social media pretty frequently uh, posting different things about leadership and blended family life. And uh, I would love to hear from anybody in your audience, any of your listeners that have questions or comments or points of clarification. Um, you can also find my books on Amazon. Uh, I've got inverted leadership and then I've got an ebook called extraordinary leadership. And actually if any of your listeners want it, if they will email me, I'll send them an ebook of either of those. I'll just send it to them for free. If they want the PDF of either or both of those email me, I'll send you an electronic version of the book. You can just have it because my goal was never to make a ton of money. My goal is to share the information. So if you want the information, I'll be glad to get it to you.
0: I love that. I love that. People I've been having as guests on the podcast so far very much the, the same sort of attitude, giving, being of service, and I, and I really love that. And it's my own my own attitude, my own values as well in everything that I go out and do thank you so much for your time today and for people listening if you found any value in the call today if you've got to learn something if you've got something that you really thought oh that's interesting i could use that so just listen but put that stuff into action as well because if you want to present influence in your own life you have to take action on the stuff that you learn. Joel, thank you so much. And I look forward to connecting with you again at some point in the future. It's been a real joy to have you as a guest today and uh, wish you a fantastic 2020 and beyond. Continue inspiring all those wonderful leaders for the future.
1: Yeah, thank you, John. It's been my pleasure as well. I really, really appreciate it. And I look forward to connecting as well with, uh, with you in the future and with anyone in your audience who would love to reach out. So thanks for having me on.
0: Great, thank you. This has been the Loki podcast from Present Influence. If you think you'd make a great podcast guest or you know someone who would, please get in touch with us. You can connect with us at presentinfluence.com or on any of our social media feeds. Tune in again for more great information and fun with Present Influence on the next Loki podcast.